For words, early morning, Cindy had had contractions throughout the night, and we were off to the hospital, a 45-minute drive down the I-4 corridor in Orlando. The time we actually got to the hospital, we found out Cindy was already nine and a half centimeters dilated. Yes, she was in transition. She had been in transition as we were driving on the rush hour, early morning traffic in I-4. Needless to say, there were no times for photos, no time for an epidural. The baby was about to come. And Cindy was in a lot of pain. She was not a happy camper at the moment. So I had my duty. I was the coach to help her breathe. So I had practiced long and hard. Look her in the eyes, take a deep breath, and then exhale. And she would follow after me. Well, that worked for a while. Then I saw that intense face get a little more intense. (laughs) And actually, I think it was during our second birth, I remember Cindy saying this after I was going through my patented breathing techniques. Your breath stinks! (laughs) Oh, I knew the child was about to come. (laughs) And indeed it did. Oh, boy. God bless the women here who are pregnant. We have, I believe, seven right now who are pregnant. We were praying for you actually on Friday morning. Oh, what an exciting time it is. Well, our firstborn, Corey Lee Smidgen Jr., we call him CJ, was born on September 2nd, 1997. In other words, that's the day in which he was delivered. Oh, he was conceived nine months prior. He'd been very much alive in mommy's womb that entire time. But you see, he wasn't born until he was delivered, delivered into the arms of his mother and his father. Like all of us, we count today's age by his birth date. And every year we celebrate this delivery. We call it his birthday. Well, this morning we're going to speak about another firstborn, the firstborn of Israel. We're going to speak about another birthday. We're going to be talking about the birth of a nation this morning, a birth of a people and even the beginning of a new Jewish calendar. It all started with what is called the Passover, the day God's people were delivered. But you see, to understand and to commemorate this Passover event, we must realize this event wasn't just about what happened 1,400 years prior to Christ in some desert land in North Africa. No. It was pointing to something much greater. The life and death of Jesus Christ. The Lamb of God. Therein lies the answer. Therein lies the meaning for us as Christians, the people of God, as we study the Passover this morning. You see, the Passover is prophetic. The Passover is a gospel event. It's not just a story of deliverance the birth of Israel, but it's our story, as those have been delivered and redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ, the new Israel. Oh, this Passover is a trailer for even greater things to come when Christ came to earth and gave his life on behalf of his redeemed. May this story be our story this morning. May it cause us to reflect. May it cause us to remember. And may it cause us to revel in God's grace this morning. May the response be one of obedience and trust. And that's the main theme for this morning. We would trust in the blood of Christ. 
the Passover lamb. In the minutes to come, we're going to unpack that phrase in just what it means. But first, let us pray. Lord, help me this morning. May I be a workman approved who rightly, correctly handles the word of God. Word of God, speak this morning. Speak to our hearts. Reveal yourself as judge, but also as redeemer. And may the response be this morning, one of pure, joyous worship. That we would say in one accord, worthy, worthy, worthy is the lamb who was slain. Amen. Amen. Sermon, as we're going to refer to it, I want you to see the text, the Word of God, this morning. Well, last week, Al spoke about the nine plagues that God brought forth on Pharaoh and in Egypt. We relive the drama of the power play between God, the one and only God, and Pharaoh, showing that God, that he is God alone. That covered chapters of 7 through chapter 10. But now the narrative is slowing down, for we have arrived at the 10th plague. We have arrived at the final plague. And this is our cue. Take note. For in verse 11, we get an introduction to what God is going to do when he brings forth the final and 10th plague. It's almost as if we have God the boxer in his pre-match press conference. Let me tell you what I'm going to do to my opponent. I'm going to knock him out. You watch this 10th plague. That's chapter 11. And then we get to chapter 12. We see that God, in fact, does knock out his opponent. And then we come to chapter 13. What do we find? God, through his people, celebrating the fact that he had just knocked out the opponent. Three chapters dedicated to the 10th plague. That tells us, slow down. Take note, something very important is here that goes beyond just three chapters. It is the gospel as seen, the lens of the Old Testament. It is what is foreshadowing and pointing to Christ and the gospel. Let us pick up in chapter 12, verse 21. I'm going to read verses 21 through verses 32. This is Moses speaking to the people after he has received instruction from the Lord regarding the tenth plague, and the Passover. Chapter 12, starting with verse 21. Then Moses called all the elders of Israel and said to them, Go and select lambs for yourselves according to your clans and kill the Passover lamb. Take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in the blood that is in the basin and touch the lintel. That's the top of the door, the door frame, the horizontal beam, and the two doorposts with the blood that is in the basin. None of you shall go out of the door of his house until the morning. For the Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians. And when he sees the blood on the lintel and on the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to enter your houses to strike you. You shall observe this rite as a statute for you and for your sons forever. And when you come to the land that the Lord will give you, as he has promised, 
you shall keep this service. And when your children say to you, what do you mean by this service? You shall say, it is a sacrifice of the Lord's Passover. For he passed over the houses of the people of Israel in Egypt when he struck the Egyptians, but spared our houses. And the people bowed their heads and worshipped. Then the people of Israel went and did so, as the Lord had commanded Moses and Aaron. So they did. So they did. Trust in the blood of Christ, the Passover lamb, which delivers us and distinguishes us. We're going to talk about those two points this morning. Well, the first point begs the question. If the blood of Christ, if the blood of the lamb that was smeared on the doorpost delivered the Israelites and would deliver us, what are we delivered from? Now, many of our, I believe, first reaction to say, well, yeah, I've, I've said this passage before. He delivered us from sin, from slavery, from bondage. Delivered us from hell. Well, all those are right and proper answers. Yes and amen. But as we read this passage, I think it becomes clear as to the nature of our primary deliverance. It's shocking and it's revealing. It's none other than this. The blood of Christ, the Passover lamb, delivers us from God's wrath. That is right. You can write it in. God's wrath. The blood delivers us from God himself. The judge that has come to judge the earth. This is our first and foremost need as humans to be delivered from God himself and his holy wrath. Oh, I know that's troubling to some, is it not? It's troubling. I know for many it is that we witness to as well that we would be delivered or need deliverance from God himself. But it's reality. This is our human need. You see, when God gave the plague, the killing of the firstborn of Egypt, there's a twist. God is no longer working through the mediation of Moses and Aaron. God himself has come to town. God himself has stepped into the ring. And God himself is at work. You see, we're fine with that. We're like, yeah, go, God. Go get him. Yeah, go get him, man. We're, we're wrapped up. Nine plagues. Bring on the tenth. We're ready. And then in Exodus 12, 12, he says this, For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And on all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. Whether it's God or a death angel doing the killing is not the point. The point is this. It is personal. God means business. and It's a deathly business. You see, suddenly the picture has changed, has it not? Not only has God stepped into the ring, but the people of Israel are also in that ring as well with the Egyptians. And God is serious about the knockout punch, the final death blow, the death of every firstborn 
in the land. You see, in the previous plagues, the people of Israel were quote-unquote automatically exempt. The plague on the flies, the plague on the cattle, the boils, the hail, the locusts, only affected the Egyptians. I'm just reading here, not to turn to it, but Exodus, right here, chapter 9, verse 26. Only in the land of Goshen, where the people of Israel were, was there no hail. God's people had been exempt. When we get to the 10th plague, the death of the firstborn, there is no discrimination. They too are included in this with a condition. With a condition. Love the quote there from Matyer in your notes. When Yahweh entered Egypt as absolute Lord and judge, Israel's problem was no longer how to escape Pharaoh, but how to be safe before such a God. That shakes me. And that should shake you as well. I was shaken last week as I watched some video footage of the best of National Geographic. I would not recommend this video for kids. It is quite graphic, particularly the animal and the killing scenes. But one scene was particularly memorable and frightening. It was video footage of three climbers who were about to climb Mount Annapurna, one of the deadliest peaks in the world. This peak is four times more deadly than climbing Mount Everest. In fact, one out of every five climbers who attempt to reach the summit die and do not come home. One out of five. Well, just as the two men are seen climbing near the very peak, a deadly avalanche begins. The men disappear. And the avalanche, now reaching speeds up to 80 miles per hour, is coming down the mountain right in view of the cameraman. It is right there. Keeping his camera on, the cameraman ducks in his tent to await his fate. But he keeps the camera on. And in the tent, we see the expression of terror as he awaits the avalanche to crush him in his tent. And then the video pans away. My friends, that is a picture of God's wrath. His sweeping judgment. Like an avalanche that does not discriminate between race or blood or ethnicity. That is common to all of us. As those part of the human race. His wrath is sure. How frightening it must have been for those that night who had been huddled in their home or huddled in their tent on that night of Passover. God had come to personally judge. Quoting from Mayer once again, the real issue is that unprotected, unsheltered humanity cannot stand in the presence of the Lord, the judge. Why? Because God is holy. Man is profane. Man is sinful. You see, God's wrath, his holy wrath, flows from his holiness. God's anger is not some capricious, irrational, whimsical display. No, it stems from his very character, his very holiness. And he is unremitting, uncompromising in his antagonism towards sin, towards evil, and anything that is evil, 
by his very nature. But may I suggest that too is love. That love is opposed to all that which is evil. That takes the place of right over wrong. Love is to hate evil. God is holy. Man is profane. We see it here in the text. That is simply to say, God cannot be made in our image. I realize it doesn't preach too well. It was just the other day I was sharing with a young man. The gospel was a wonderful conversation. But he had many objections. And he said something you've probably heard, I know I've heard many times. If God is a God of wrath and is going to judge me for my sin, I don't want that kind of God. But to that I simply say, a God who is made in our sinful, distorted image is a God to be pitied, not a God to be worshipped. What we have here is a God to be feared and a God to be worshipped. For he and he alone is God. See how easy it is to dismiss the fact of our sinfully fallen state. See, God's wrath doesn't just remain on those guys over there, on those Egyptians, on the bad guy, on Pharaoh. God's wrath remains on us. John 3, 36, for those who do not believe in the Savior, who do not obey the Savior, it says, the wrath remains on you. The wrath of God remains on me. It's interesting to note that if we read this preface to the final plight, chapter 11, and then we skip the first 29 verses, it almost reads seamlessly. We can go from chapter 11 to... Exodus chapter 12, verse 29, and pick up just like the other plagues. You know, God hardens Pharaoh's heart, right? What happens after that? The Lord brings a plague, in this case, strikes down the firstborn of Egypt, right? Suffering ensues, and then Pharaoh relents. It reads just like the other nine plagues. But we can't skip over the first 28 verses in the chapter 12. For there we see the Passover. There we see the heart of deliverance. There we see and understand the gospel itself. We cannot pass over this section if we're to understand the gospel. See, the question is not why would God destroy the firstborn of Egypt. The question is why would he pass over the people of Israel who are deserving of judgment? Like you, like me. That is the question that we are confronted with in the text. To pick up the avalanche story, the camera then comes back. On, and all is still. The cameraman climbs out of his tent. The crushing avalanche, literally tons of snow, has stopped within feet of his tent. He then stands up and gives a cry and a yell, seeing if his two friends were somehow spared in this incredible avalanche. Then soon we see two specks there on an ice wall, and they yell back. They, in fact, were alive. These men had been hiding on a cliff in a hole in the wall, literally a cleft in the rock, And the avalanche had passed right over them. And they were safe. You see a story a second ago that's about God's wrath. 
has now turned to the story of God's mercy. What mercy, what grace that God would save them. They come back to the tent and they're interviewing these men. They're like giddy children. They cannot believe it. They have been spared from the wrath of God. They have been spared from the avalanche of Mount Annapurna. My friends, in Christ, so are we. Rock of ages, cleft for me. Let me hide myself in thee. Let the water and the blood from thy wounded side which flowed be of sin the double cure. Save from wrath and make me pure. A wonderful 18th century hymn, Rock of Ages. Why would God spare anyone? The answer is the blood, the rock of ages. The answer is, is in God's divine provision. In your notes B, divine provision. We see it happily put. Really, I think the key verse here, verse 13 of chapter 12. Let us read it. Let me read it. The blood shall be a sign for you. And on the houses where you are, and when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. Friends, the Lord needed no signposts. He needed no markers, no aid to know who were his and who were not. God did not have bad eyesight as he was passing over, okay, all the houses to see who he was going to kill, who he wasn't, okay? He knew exactly. Then why the blood, you ask? Blood symbolizes the life of a victim. You can write down your notes, Leviticus chapter 17, verse 11. Leviticus 17, verse 11. You see, the lamb or victim became a substitute for the firstborn son in each household dying in his place. The lamb was a penal substitute, i.e. the blood represented the sacrifice of the lamb, which propitiated, no fancy theological word, but it's an important word, which propitiated, i.e. satisfied, and appeased the wrath, wrath of God. In fact, the word appease isn't even good. It even connotes a... A softening of his wrath. His wrath wasn't softened. No, his wrath was exhausted. It was consumed by the lamb. But we all know no lamb or goat can consume the wrath of God. You see, that lamb was pointing to the lamb 1,400 years later. The only lamb, the only one who could absorb the wrath of God. And that is God himself in the flesh, Jesus Christ. God is both judge and savior. Both judge and savior. You see, it is God in his holy wrath which needs to be propitiated. But it is God in his holy love which undertook to do the propitiation. But it is God in Christ, the Passover lamb, who died for the propitiation of our sins. You see, it's all God from beginning to end. We need deliverance from God. We need deliverance to God. It's from God and to God. You see the glory here? The Exodus is not about us. It's about God, his glory, and what he's done in Christ Jesus from beginning to end. On that day, on that Passover night, you see every Egyptian household and Israelite 
household experienced death. Every household in the land of Egypt. It was either the death of the firstborn son or the death, death of the one-year-old male lamb or goat. It was one or the other. The only difference was the Israelites' firstborn sons were saved because a lamb was sacrificed. A lamb was substituted in their place. That of the firstborn. God in his amazing grace has provided a substitute for his firstborn. The people who he had chosen and purposed to redeem. As Christians, we know the blood of lambs and goats does not save anyone. But this sacrifice pointed to the Lamb of God who was crucified on a cross on our behalf. In the words of one commentator, Jesus' death gave what the Passover pointed to but could not give. That's why the Apostle Paul could say in 1 Corinthians 5-7, For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. In fact, John structured his last, the gospel, the last passion week of Christ's death. He structured it just as so that we would understand that when Christ was on the cross, that was the exact time that the victims of the Passover feast were being slaughtered. That was no coincidence, my friends. He is making a point. In fact, this is so cool. This morning, I'm just going through my regular quiet time, hit John 6. That's why it's so good to read the Bible. Just, God, make connections here. I was reading of the feeding of the 5,000. When did Christ feed the 5,000? It was during Passover. Once again, I think John is being very intentional here as the author to point that out to us. That Christ is the fulfillment of Passover. Christ is the bread of life. He is a lamb that was slaughtered for us. He was our provision. The New Testament authors and writers made it very clear how they interpreted this Passover. And yes, indeed, the Lord's Supper. If you catch nothing else this morning, please catch this. God passed over Israel. He'll pass over us, his firstborn son, because he did not pass over his son, capital S, the firstborn of all creation. Let me say it again. This is profound. This is the message of the Passover. God passed over Israel, and he passes over us, his firstborn son. Right now, our firstborn son, right, Exodus 4.22. You'll see the reference to Israel, the people of God, as the firstborn. Why? Because he didn't pass over his son, capital S, Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, who is called what? The firstborn over all creation. That's Colossians 1.15. Colossians 1.15. In this Passover, this sacrifice was once and for all. For it says in Hebrews 10.12, But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sin, he sat down at the right hand of God. Church, this is amazing news. This is the gospel. But it also requires a response. You see, the people of Israel had to make the correct choice of a lamb or a goat according to the number of their household and the need. We read in Exodus 12, verses 3, actually going down to verse 5. 
Exodus 12. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male, a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats. A male had to be a year old, and it had to be without blemish. I believe it's a reference. We have a reference there from 1 Peter 1.19. Christ was our sacrifice, and his blood ransomed us. He was the one without blemish. Friends, what would your choice be? How will you choose? Will it be Christ, the Lamb of God? Secondly, the people of God, the people of Israel, had to smear the blood on the doorposts of their house. It was an act of the will. They had to place their trust, you see, in God's provision. Eating roast lamb in a china box wasn't enough, okay? They had more than just partake of the lamb. They had to say, this is for me. This blood is for me in my household. And how? By declaring it, by smearing it on the doorposts of their house, the blood of the lamb. The people of Israel were saved by faith as expressed in this act. In other words, there had to be an individual appropriation of this divine provision that God had made, this lamb that he had ordained. If you have not repented this morning, I do not want to assume everyone has this morning. If you have not repented of your sin and taken refuge in Christ, our substitute and sacrifice for our sins, flee. Flee to him today. Take a stand under the blood of the Lamb by bowing your heart to him. Take that blood, symbolizing Christ's sacrifice, and provision for your sin, and wipe it on the door frames of your hearts and that of your household. Make that stand. I know that many of us here have made that stand. We saw it on the video screen, didn't we? Baptism, one of the two sacraments of the church. Now, baptism doesn't save, but I believe it is to be a public sacrament for the reasons we've been mentioning here in Exodus. It is a public declaration. It's a wiping the door on the door frame. See, I stand in the blood of Christ. That's what's being done. A public declaration called baptism. But we have a second sacrament of the church, and we're going to celebrate that in a few moments. It's called communion or the Lord's Supper. It's there, too, that we stand in the blood of Christ and receive the benefits of he who died for us. It is a public act, not to be done at home in private, but to be done corporately, to declare that we are the ones Yes, that are under the blood of Christ. We are the ones, the people of God. It's the blood of Christ, the Passover lamb, that delivers us from God's wrath. It's also the blood of Christ, the Passover lamb, that distinguishes us as God's people, rather than God's people. You see, instead of fighting in the boxing ring against God, we are now fighting with him and for him. God's victory over sin and the enemy of our souls is now ours. You see, Pharaoh understood this in a chapter 12, verse 32. He says, you can find it here, bless me, bless me. He is speaking to Moses and to Aaron. Bless me also. See, no longer were the people of Israel viewed as Pharaoh's possession. When they were delivered from the wrath of God, Pharaoh finally understood, at least for a time, yes, that 
God's people, the people of Israel, belong to God and not to him. You see, instead of those being plundered, people of Israel are now the ones plundering Egypt as God's people. Verse 36. A people that had been delivered, a nation that had been birthed by God, under God, a people who belonged to God, not only by creation, but now a people of God who belonged to God by redemption. See, up to this point in the Old Testament, we see God's claim on us people through creation and through treaty. But now we see it through redemption. He has paid the price. He has ransomed his people. He has redeemed his people. And now they are his, bought with the blood of the Lamb, which is Christ Jesus. God now has proprietary rights. He always did, but it was claim through redemption. Creation and now redemption. Here we see the dawning of a new covenant here in the Old Testament, pointing to the new covenant that was fulfilled in Christ Jesus. Remember one of our theme chapters in Exodus is chapter 6, when God says, I am and I will. What does he say? I will deliver you. He doesn't stop there. He says, and I will redeem you, that you would be my people. I will be your God, and you would be my people. In the Passover, we see this happening. We see that God is the deliverer and the redeemer. And that distinguishes God's people from all others. In conclusion, we need the blood. We also need as a sign. And I love what it says in Exodus 12, verse 13. The blood shall be a sign. For who? For you. For me. Oh, I need this sign this morning. I admit to you, it's been a difficult week. God has shown me new depths of my selfishness and, yes, unbelief in a number of areas. It is felt this week that I've taken two steps towards the cross and three steps back. This morning, I need the sign of the blood to remind me of what God has done in sparing me and taking me as his own. I realize there may be those this morning who are in the wilderness now. You need the blood. You need the blood. You see, the Passover wasn't given to commemorate the crossing of the Red Sea. All that was a mighty supernatural act of God. It seems to be the climax of most of the movies that we watch. But that wasn't the greatest deliverance. The greatest deliverance is what happened the night of Passover when God passed over our sins in judgment because he judged his son. And that's what Passover is to commemorate. And that's what he told Moses and Aaron as well. You see, God knew there was many more months of wandering, many more years of wandering for God's people in the wilderness. In fact, Moses wrote the book after his people had been wandering for many years on that dry, barren, humanly speaking, God-forsaken peninsula. He says, I want you to remember something. Oh, I know it's tough here. Water from a rock, man in the morning, quail at night. I know this is not a hospitable place. 
But I want you to remember, and I want your children to remember who you belong to and what I've done for you. I have set up this institution called Passover that you would remember. And we have it too now in the Lord's Supper that we too would remember what Christ has done. No matter how difficult it may be. What's your wilderness this morning? Maybe it's Miami. Maybe it's your job situation or even your family situation. But God wants you to know he has come to deliver you from his own wrath, to take you as his own. Your garments won't wear out. Your shoes neither will wear out because you belong to God. May that feed your soul this morning. With that in mind, we'd like now to celebrate this Passover, to celebrate this communion. I can invite the worship team up as well as the ushers forward. Have your attention, Bibles open. This is not just an attachment to our Sunday service. This is an application. This is the only fitting conclusion as we study God's word this morning. We're going to take the blood. The wine representing the blood. We're taking the bread representing Christ's body, the Passover lamb. As a sign for those who are believers this morning, I hope a sign of an encouragement. Perhaps you've wavered in your unbelief this morning. Perhaps you've wavered in your belief that God will provide. Perhaps you feel like this morning that you're the one being plundered as the one doing the plundering. Perhaps you feel like a slave to sin in Egypt rather than a slave to God and righteousness. Sin seems to have the upper hand right now. You feel Satan's combination more than you do God's forgiveness and grace. Perhaps this morning you're convinced that God's wrath rests on you. You feel like the other shoe is about to drop. And the death angel is somehow ready to drop by your house. Somehow the blood of Christ, the blood of the Lamb of God, doesn't seem enough this morning. Friends, let us take a stand in faith under the blood of the Lamb.